The reading this morning from Matthew chapter 12. You'll find this on page 978 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin, let's just open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come before you to consider your word. We pray, Lord, that you will speak to us now, that you will send your Holy Spirit to open our minds and to open our hearts to the truth of that word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I'm sure you'll agree with me that it's easy to ignore a probing inquiry as long as it's not about me. Right? It's unlikely that any of us would lose sleep over the fact that someone who's guilty of a crime is judged and condemned when they refuse to acknowledge their guilt and their liability. But if it was me, I would feel differently. Now that's brought home to us in our Bible passage today. If you've been coming along in the mornings, you'll know that we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've seen that Matthew is intently focused, amongst all the Gospels, he's most intently focused on showing the fact, on showing that Jesus Christ is 
the long-promised Savior. He is the Messiah who has come. He is the King who has come. That's what Matthew is obsessed with. But when Jesus does come, he comes with a searching and a probing message. And what happens is that he meets stiff opposition from those whose powerful position he undermines and whose authority he questions. The religious leaders of the day. And what we've seen from chapter 12 onwards is that their hostility actually becomes quite explicit and very direct. Now they are hostile to Christ's message, not just because their authority is under question, but also because they absolutely and resolutely reject all evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be, the, third person, the second person of the Trinity, the Savior, the Messiah and the King. And as we saw last week, what they do is they even accuse him of doing the work of Satan. And what Jesus does in response is he doesn't mince his words, but he actually narrows in on the root cause for their rejection. And he says in verse 34 of Matthew 12, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christ makes it clear that their problem is a heart problem. It's not an evidence problem. It's simply and fundamentally that they have resistant, they have hard, and they have unchanged hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not that they haven't heard his life-transforming preaching. They have. They've heard it in abundance. It's not that they haven't experienced his godly wisdom and encountered that. They have also in abundance. And it's not that they haven't seen his prophecy-fulfilling miracles. They have also in abundance. It's just that they do not want to know. It's a heart problem. And how do they respond to Jesus when he says, you have a heart problem, not an evidence problem? They have the audacity to ask for more evidence. They ask for more evidence. They ask for a miraculous sign. So look at the beginning of the passage today, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law answered, and answered is a bit more accurate than what the NIV translation says when they say said to. This conversation and this dialogue is continuing from what has gone before. Right? They answered him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. They ignore the probing message, and they direct the focus back to Jesus by saying, we actually need to see another sign. Now this is a tactic known as deflection, and if you're married, then you are well aware of it. You're confronted with an uncomfortable truth. And what you do is you deflect the focus of the attention elsewhere, preferably back onto the accusing party. That is what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. They're squirming to get away from the heart accusation that Christ has just made, so they try and redirect the focus of attention back on him. But Jesus won't have any of it. He keeps their attention and he keeps our attention tightly focused on the heart of the matter, as it were. And he shows how either we have unchanged hearts or we have changed hearts. 
So that's how we'll look at today's passage. We'll look at how he talks about unchanged hearts and about changed hearts. And in so doing as a bonus, what you will have is you will have irrefutable proof of the fact that at least some of us have the courage to sail out into the uncharted waters of the two-point sermon. We'll see if others who shall remain nameless will take up the challenge in weeks to come. So firstly, unchanged hearts. Look at verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus highlights two aspects of the unchanged heart. He focuses on two things. He highlights two realities. And the first thing he focuses on is the fact that they are in a predicament. They're in a predicament. Now we need a little bit of background to understand the point he's making here. So Nineveh was a large, impressive city, the capital of Assyria in Old Testament times hundreds of years before. Nineveh was a large place. It was, it was a place where, that, where the, that was the capital of, of uh, the enemies of the Israelites. And they were a very horrendous nation at times. What they did, not only to their enemies, but even to their own people, doesn't bear thinking about, much less describing. Jonah lived sometime in the middle of the 8th century BC. Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He lived near Nazareth. God chooses Jonah to take a message to these Ninevites. And it's a message calling them to repent and to turn to the one true God of the Israelites. Jonah wants nothing to do with it. Because Jonah knows that his God is a merciful and a gracious God, and the last thing he wants is a bunch of filthy, evil, Gentile Ninevites to repent and turn to the living God. He wants them wiped out, and he wants them sent straight to judgment. And that's all he wants of them. So he decides, forget this, I'm out of here. He takes a boat headed for a place called Tarshish, far away from Nineveh. He's trying to run from God. He's a silly man. The weather picks up. The sea becomes violent and turbulent. The boat is clearly going to capsize. They discover who's to blame, and Jonah tells the sailors that they have to throw him overboard. They have to sacrifice him so that they may be saved. They resist, but eventually they agree. Over he goes, at which point the water's calm, and the weather suddenly clears. Jonah finds himself swallowed up by a massive sea creature for three days, and he's eventually spewed out onto a beach. He takes the hint, he grudgingly goes, and calls the Ninevites to repentance. They respond and to the dismay of the most reluctant evangelist in all of history, they are shown mercy by God. 
and Jonah goes off in a huff. Jesus shows us that Jonah's life, the sign of the prophet Jonah, was a sign of the Messiah who was to come. Jonah and Jesus both had a mission to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Jonah and Jesus both offered their lives as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice in order to save lives. Jonah and Jesus both appear alive after three days entombed. Jonah and Jesus both preach a message of repentance and they both see men, women and children respond and are saved. The life of Jonah from near Nazareth foretells the life of Jesus from Nazareth. And the message of Jonah culminates and it finds its ultimate fulfillment and its ultimate reality in the life of Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so Jesus tells the resistant Pharisees, you've had all the signs that you need in your history as a chosen people, in God's word and in what you have seen of me and what you have heard from me. And the only sign left for you is my death and my resurrection in fulfillment of a prophecy of the life of Jonah. And then you will face judgment. When even those Ninevites, those filthy Gentiles you love to hate, will stand there and say, we accepted the word of Jonah when he called us to repent. How could you possibly reject the word of the Messiah when he was stood right there in front of you? Their testimony will condemn you, Jesus says to them. And then to drive the point home even further, Jesus talks about another Gentile, which would have aggravated them even more. Another one whose testimony will also condemn them. So look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Now, Jesus is referring to the Queen of Sheba. She visited Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 10. And his message is that if this Gentile queen would travel so far and take so many risks to hear the truth and to hear the wisdom of Solomon, how much more should you Pharisees be willing to sit under the words of the one who is the source of wisdom itself? So that's the first thing Jesus shows us about the unchanged heart. It is in a predicament. They've heard far greater teaching from a greater teacher than Jonah. They've seen more miraculous signs than anyone could possibly ask for. They've seen and heard far greater wisdom from one far wiser than Solomon. And they will see the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so the predicament that they are in means that if nothing changes, then they face being condemned in a judgment reinforced by the testimony of those Gentiles, the very ones that they love to hate. Now, generally speaking, we're all quite happy. We're all quite keen, actually, to see other people, bad people, face God's justice, right? We're quite keen for that to happen. Pharisees, thieves, murderers, even the odd politician. We're okay with that. But what about us? What about our attempt at deflection? Surely the fact that we, all of this is recorded for us is partly to prevent us from trying to deflect, 
because we will do the same as the Pharisees and we same the same, face the same predicament. We will also face God's perfect justice. Holly Ordway is an English professor in the States. Uh, she was an ardent atheist before she became a Christian and she entitled her biography Not God's Type, which is a clever bit of word play from an English professor. Type, fit, fixed, type, typewriter. Anyway, um, so here's what she says. She says, at that dim morning hour, and again as I thought about it later, I recognized something important. I didn't actually want justice. I considered myself a good person, but in my heart I was afraid to be judged on, this, on the real self behind my outward image. Perfect justice was terrifying, and yet completely fair. It was completely fair that God would dispense to me exactly what I deserved. Perfect justice. And that's the predicament that they face. That's the predicament that Jesus drives home in revealing the unchanged heart. That's the predicament we all face, that we will all stand before God to give an account. But then he probes further, and he goes from the predicament to giving his prognosis. He gives his prognosis, verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, when you get to those verses, it may feel a little bit like you've just taken a very unexpected left turn on a roller coaster and you're left thinking, what on earth does this have to do with what I have just read, right? So, um, and it did that for me. But what you'll see is that this is actually very purposeful. Now, the, these few verses have multiple areas and multiple layers of application, which is always the way with Scripture. But the important thing to notice is that what Christ is doing is he's making an observation about the true state of their hearts by using an illustration of exorcism. He's making an observation about their hearts by giving a picture of exorcism. What he's saying to them is that your lives may have been swept clean. Your lives may have been utterly reformed. You may have laid aside all the external sins that you were once guilty of. You may be the most upright and respected in all of society. But your external moral reform doesn't solve your underlying problem. Any more than removing a demonic occupant guarantees that everything is now permanently fine. The problem that they and we all have is a heart problem. Jesus is saying that true eternal change is an, in, is an inward change. And it must begin with a changed heart, an inward change of the heart, not just with changed behavior. And if that doesn't happen, 
if that heart isn't fully transformed by being both cleansed of evil and filled with life, then that superficial external change will just get subsumed over time and what you'll have is a state of heart which is even more hardened to the real change that it needs. And it will be, as Jesus says, a situation where the final condition will be worse than the first. And that change of heart is something that only God can do. It's not something we can do. The way Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet, quotes God, tells us this. God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They will be my people and I will be their God. And so David then, knowing this, cries out to God in the Psalms, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Only God can remove what is there and replace it with a new spirit. Only God can both cleanse and fill. So there we have it. Jesus <clears throat> reveals their predicament. They face judgment and condemnation enforced by the testimony of others, and he reveals his prognosis. It's a problem of a heart of stone, a stubborn, rebellious heart that will not call on God for cleansing and for filling. A while later, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he recounts the parable of a very wealthy man and of a beggar by the name of Lazarus. And the picture he paints is of the rich man in hell. On the, on the other side of a great divide is Lazarus in heaven who is standing next to Abraham. And the rich man, who clearly has regrets but doesn't truly repent, ignores again Lazarus, the once beggar, and calls out to Abraham to beg him to send Lazarus to his father and to his brothers to warn them about the suffering that they face. What does Abraham say? Abraham says, no. He says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to the word of God, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus tells the Pharisees that there is only one sign left for them, given they've rejected all that he said, all that he is, and all that he did. And it is the sign of Jonah, the sign of the resurrected Savior. And he later tells his disciples, in effect, that anyone who rejects the truth of God's transforming and changing word won't be convinced even by that sign. Because the evidence isn't the problem. The heart is. Nobody puts it more directly than Paul, the apostle. So Paul, writing in a letter to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, says this. He says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So if that warning, that warning that Christ gave the Pharisees, that warning that Christ gave the disciples, that warning that Paul gave the Ephesians is true for them, then surely it's true for us. We're sitting on the other side of Christ's resurrection. We have, in the New Testament, more revealed knowledge of God than they ever had. We have more historical testimony to the truth of the gospel than they had. We have witnesses 
just as emphatic, but vastly more numerous than they had in the Ninevites and in the Queen of Sheba. And those witnesses will ask us one day, how could you possibly not believe and not cry to God for a change of heart, knowing what you know? How on earth could you be so resistant? But encouragingly, Jesus then moves on from unchanged hearts to talk about changed hearts. So verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if the previous verses felt a little bit like a sharp left roller coaster turn that you weren't expecting, this might feel like now you're being swung right again. But if we look at it carefully, we'll see there's a very good reason why Matthew highlights this incident now. And again, there's multiple areas of application. So Jesus has unveiled the unchanged heart. He's told us what's going on, right? And what he's going to do in chapter 13 after this is he's going to show how we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom. So look at chapter 13, verse 11. He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. You may have noticed he's going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. So he's unveiled the unchanged heart. He's going to unveil what being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means. But before he gets there, Matthew wants to give us an insight into those with changed hearts. And he does that by showing, giving us a brief recount of an incident involving Jesus' family. Now this little vignette about Jesus and his family isn't intended to give preachers permission to break a golden rule of preaching, namely never ever use your family in sermon illustrations. That's not what he's doing. That rule still stands. I've been emphatically told that that rule still stands (laughs) on more than one occasion by those who shall remain nameless. Nor is he being disparaging to his family and disrespecting his dear mother or anything else like that. What he's doing is he's echoing something he said back in chapter 11. So turn back to chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew wants us to appreciate that going to Christ to find rest for our souls works itself out by accepting the truth preached by the preacher greater by far than Jonah. 
going to him to find rest for your soul works itself out by submitting to the wisdom of one greater by far than Solomon. And doing that, going to him by, to find rest for your soul, works itself out, verse 50, in doing the will of our Father in heaven. It's all of a piece. We can't jump to this incident in isolation and rip it out of its context. We have to understand what Christ is saying in the flow of the dialogue and in the context of everything he said previously and what he will say later. So the changed heart is one which is given by God, creating me a pure heart, O God, David says in the Psalms. It's one which responds to the call of Christ to come to him. Come to me and I will give you rest. It's one which accepts his words, those of a greater preacher than Jonah, and it's one which submits to his wisdom, that of one greater than Solomon. And it's one which then lives a life of giving glory to God the Father by doing the will of our Father in heaven. It's those with changed hearts who, as Jesus said, way back in Matthew chapter 5, are poor in spirit and pure in heart and who will be welcomed into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for revealing the true state of the unchanged heart for us. Thank you that you in your mercy and in your grace provide a way for those hearts to be eternally and wonderfully and gloriously changed. So we ask, Lord, we ask and we pray that you would extend your saving grace, you would extend your life-giving spirit to everyone hearing this who has an unchanged heart, that they too may be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven to look on your face with joy and with delight. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory.